Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, February 24th, 2012. We are almost a sixth of the way through the year. Whew! <laughs> you know, every time I uh, circle the sun uh, on this planet, it seems like the next loop just goes that much quicker. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. This is ultimately a teaching program. We try to have a little bit of fun along the way. Some of the people we feature here regularly on the on the program say some of the craziest things. Why? Because their hearts, their minds are not bound by the Word of God. The the metaphor I like to use is that there's these wonderful psalms in the Scripture where it talks about how God, when he created the seas and he created the land, uh, he, he said to the waves and to the ocean, this far you shall come and no farther. Uh, the, the same idea applies to biblical doctrine and theology. Uh, we, we have a revealed word from God. We are to focus on and become experts on understanding that. It is that word, that revelation that renews and transforms and changes our minds, our thinking, and our behavior. Okay, and so you know, let us delve deeply into God's word and leave the crazy people with their dreams and visions and direct words from God. <laughs> Don't go near those folks. You know, go with this attitude: this far we come and no further. This far we come and no further. We can trust God's word. That other stuff, yeah, not so certain. I can trust that. Okay, so I I think that's the extent of my monologue today. The reason I, I need to, you know, kind of cut that short, my monologue uh, uh, portion of the program short, well, there's a lot of things I want to cover today. Today, I, I, I don't want it to be a long program, but I fear that it's going to be. And, uh, and so I want to make sure that I get the things I want to get in on the first hour in so that second hour, you know, we, we can uh, focus on what we're going to do. So we're, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's program. I'm going to go backwards. In hour number two, we're going to be listening to a, uh, a good sermon slash lecture by Dr. Carl Truman of Westminster Theological Seminary, I think out in uh, Pennsylvania. But uh, he's, he, he's, uh, he has a, a lecture that he delivered a few years back 
on the theology of the cross, Luther's theology of the cross, and I need to pass that along. The reason being is is that uh, earlier this week, we listened to a miserable, horrible, uh, terrible uh, handling of uh, of a crucifixion text by uh, uh, from Hillsong, uh, Brian Houston. And next week, probably on Monday or Tuesday at the latest, I've got another really horrible sermon that I'm going to be reviewing uh, from a church down in uh, down under, I think in New Zealand. But uh, and it's 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 miserable. It's just a miserable handling, and and supposedly it's on the seven words of uh, Jesus from the cross, and it's it, oh man. Anyway, uh, my blood pressure was. Uh, just exploding today when I was uh, you know, previewing the sermon. But I realized as I was listening to the sermon, I need to sandwich between the two bad sermons on these crucifixion texts um, uh, something that, uh, that is a, a very good and in-depth teaching on how the cross, the a right understanding of the cross is is critical for good Christian theology and good Christian doctrine. And Carl Truman uh, uh, you know, it, it, even though he's a reform guy, he did a fantastic lecture on Luther's theology of the cross that I'm going to put in there because this will build. This will be the foundation uh, that I I use as far as my critique uh, next week of the uh, of the bad sermon. So it, that's what we're going to do in hour number two. You're not going to want to miss it. It's a, it's a fantastic lecture on the theology of the cross. Now, first hour, um, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith in the first hour. We're going to begin with a Patricia King update. Uh, Patricia King is going to tell us about the importance of um, resurrection ministry. Um, Yeah, resurrection ministry. And uh, it's... it's, Yeah, there's some stuff she says in this that, well, I... I feel like this entire week I've played the warning, uh, you know, that, you know, you're going to hear crazy things on Fighting for the Faith. And, uh, y- you know, yesterday being an example of some of the craziest stuff we've ever played, you know, you get to listening into an emergent conversation during what would normally be a sermon time. Uh, but I got to I got to tell you, this is uh, uh, if you have if you do uh, have a habit of putting on a tinfoil pyramid hat while listening to certain segments of Fighting for the Faith. Gotta warn you, this segment with Patricia King, you may want to add some lead tape lining to your tinfoil pyramid hat just in case. Because here's the deal. I wouldn't want any of you to experience an accidental audio lobotomy as a result of listening to that segment. So, you know, I'm just saying, you know, you you need to, you know, protect yourself. So we got a Patricia King update. Um, and uh, then I'm going to be playing a little bit of audio from... The atheist magician and debunker Penn Jillette. Uh He's. It's this is kind of odd. This you know. Uh, I, in some ways, I feel I've got more in common with Penn Jillette than I do with some people who call themselves Christians. But uh, he's got a video that he did. Uh, he uh, recently did for. Well, actually, it was in June of last year that when it was published on YouTube and uh, by the Big Think folks. And uh, the, the name of the video is Why Tolerance is Condescending. Why Tolerance is uh, Condescending. And um, I, I had tip to Dan Engel of uh, Lutheran Time Out uh, and, uh, for posting this on his Facebook wall this morning, and I was able to catch it. But uh, there, there's, some, there's two things I want you to hear in this, uh, this audio segment. And uh, one has to do with subjective religious experiences 
he's spot on on this. And you need to be familiar with what atheists and people who are who are good critical thinkers think about, you know, basically saying, I know that God is true because I'm I feel things in my heart. Um, Penn Gillette does a fantastic job of taking that concept and running it to its logical conclusion worth hearing. And uh, and so I'm going to I'm going to play that. And then after we come back from the uh, first break. We're going to do an emergent update, but we're gonna we're we're gonna do a contrast. I'm gonna call it the ta- a tale of two lents, not lents, but lents, like the season of Lent. Now, now I understand that uh, that uh, Lent is normally associated with Roman Catholicism or churches that are more historic in their structure and and follow a traditional church year. Now, I understand that not everybody who listens to Fighting for the Faith is into those things. Hey, listen, I totally get it. Believe me when I tell you, when I when I came out of evangelicalism, Lent was one of those things that took me a long time to warm up to. One of the reasons why it took me a long time to warm up to it, number one, it's it's not, it's not biblically prescribed. I mean, let's just be blunt, okay? But see, this is where Christian liberty comes into play, okay? It, it, you have the freedom to either observe Lent or not observe Lent. Just think of it as an organized way, a uh, way of organizing your devotional uh, life in preparation leading into uh, Resurrection Day, uh, you know, which people call Easter, but I, I, I hate that name just because of it historical. Historically, it's just not a good name. Uh, you know, in, in, the, uh, the, the Feast of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ, that, you know, that's, I think, a better name. But anyway, so, you know, but uh, listen, there's, there's all kinds of silliness and nonsense associated with Lent. And what I, here's the deal, because it's neither biblically prescribed nor prohibited, you have the freedom to either observe it or not observe it. You, there's, there's, this is not a compulsory kind of thing. So the idea is, is this, is that uh, because it's not biblically prescribed, um, what you do with Lent, or what a church body or a church denomination does with Lent, it, well, it that their theology is going to be what dictates that. And keep in mind, I understand that Lent is full. You know, is is one of those things that many people associate with Roman Catholicism. The practice of Lent predates by a long, long time. Predates uh, the usurpation. Of the uh, of the Bishop of Rome, uh, you know, into what became known as the papacy. So you keep that in mind. I mean, Lent predates uh, Rome, uh, Roman Catholicism. So you know, the the idea here is it's a teaching and discipling tool, and uh, you're uh, you know, it's you get what I'm saying. Anyway, so but what we're going to do is we're I'm just going to compare and contrast. I mean, the uh, Emergent postmodern folks, you know, in, in their ancient future spiritual practices, you know, they embrace Lent um, and they project onto it their um, ideas. And so we're going to do a little compare and contrast. We're going to listen to a conversation with uh, uh, Doug Paget and Phyllis Tickle talking about the physicality of Lent. I have no idea what that means. And just compare it with uh, uh, a recent video published uh, on the Internet by uh, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Uh, President Matthew Harrison, you know, giving, you know, sharing about Lent, you know, itself and offering some prayer advice, you know, which I think is fantastic stuff. But the the, the comparison and the contrasting couldn't be sharper. So that's what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And you know, again, I I don't think I can warn you uh, adequately, but you know, you listen to today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, especially you know what we're about to play. 
at your own risk. See, I, I assume no liability whatsoever to what terrible things may befall you as a result of what it is that you are about to hear on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. But I will do this, you know. Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Does your church raise the dead? Do you have a resurrection ministry? Well, if not, then, well, you need to consider this little devotional by um, Patricia King of Extreme Prophetic on on really about, um, well, resurrection ministry type work. Uh, Here's Patricia King. I want to share today on the power of resurrection and it's part of our mandate as believers and uh, something yeah resurrection is part of our mandate okay that really triggered me is on uh on january the first we had a family in our city whose uh three children were out going for a walk they were just out walking the the canal and uh one of their one of the boys fell in the canal the other two boys went in to try to save him and um two two of them the the young boy who who um fell in and the older boy who was trying to save him drowned and one of the boys made his way out so we had two deaths on january 1st in our city and they were christians and they go to a church in this area that we're actually connected with a a church for the nations and so i mean our our first response was oh we feel so bad about this but as i was praying the next day the very next day we were in our staff meeting i thought sadness shouldn't be my first response i should be a first responder declaring the resurrection of jesus christ that should be what exactly does that mean be my first response you know but it wasn't it was like oh that poor family and oh lord bring comfort and that so we spent a whole hour in our ministry prayer time praying that God would season our heart and prepare us to believe for resurrections. We start praying and praying and praying and decreeing, decreeing, decreeing resurrection over those boys because. You- mm-hmm. All right. Um. <clears throat> you know the widow of Nain. She had a child who died, and yeah. he was in the coffin, and they were in the funeral procession when Jesus raised him from the dead. Again, well, kind of keep in mind. Yes, this is true. Jesus raised the. Uh, the son of the widow of Nain from the dead. Notice, though, this is a descriptive text, not a prescriptive. And then there was Lazarus. He'd been in the grave. He was already buried. Yeah, true. For four days he'd been dead. Yeah. Already buried, and he rose up from the the dead right out of the grave. Yeah. This is part of our mandate, but we don't... Um, no, No, actually, it's not part of the Great Commission. 
Now, the passage she's referring to is, you know, I, I don't know the address offhand, but I know what she's talking about. When there's a couple of times when Jesus took his disciples and, and the extended followers and he commissioned them to go out on mini missions trips, kind of like training trips, if you would. And he told them to cast out demons, to raise the dead, you know, perform miracles, preach the gospel, that kind of stuff. But that was not a general commission for the entire church. That was something that was specific for these tiny little mission trips, uh, you know, these training mission trips that Jesus sent the, the you know, his disciples out at uh, two by two, by the way. So, yeah, she's she's here taking Jesus's words to them and making it apply to the church as a whole. That, uh, yeah, raising the dead isn't actually part of the Great Commission itself. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, here's the deal. Okay, because, because um, Ephesians chapter 2 and Romans chapter 3 make it clear that every human, oh, I would even throw in the mix the uh, passages from Genesis. You know, the, the, the scriptures are clear on this, that every human being descended naturally from Adam and Eve, uh, that would be you and me, that uh, we are all born dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, and, and that is, it is for real dead. I mean, we are spiritually dead, dead, dead towards God. So preaching the gospel, it, it, by the way, Romans ten seventeen says that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. God uses means to raise and regenerate sinners. And the means by which you know he, he, he does this is through his word. So the idea is, is that, when we preach the gospel, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, God uses the preaching of the gospel, uses his word to regenerate dead sinners, to raise them from the dead, literally. And so every single Christian, every single Christian is somebody who has been resurrected and raised from the dead spiritually now, and at the consummation of time, physically as well. Okay, so you know this. I mean, this is this is just Christianity 101. But here, Patricia King is taking a passage that is not exactly part of the Great Commission, and now she's just kind of spinning out her own theology. You know what? When there's deaths, we need to be first responders to proclaim the <clears throat> resurrection. What exactly does that mean? Think you know, I was reminded of a story this morning that my husband and I heard when we were at YWAM in school, and um, it was a uh, missionary from Micronesia, and he had been trained in an American Bible college in the scriptures and that, and his first assignment was to be sent to this island in Micronesia to help the church plant that had already started there, and so he went over there, and. Uh, Within a few days, he was conducting his first funeral service because someone on the island died. And he was right in the middle of the service when all of a sudden, a whole bunch of the village people went and ran up to the coffin and pulled the body up out of the coffin and started dragging it around, praising God, dragging it around the little church building. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, this. <laughs> oh, this is getting weird. Uh, yeah, that... <laughs> I think there's laws that prohibit stuff like that. They would consider that desecration of the body. I mean, seriously, really? Okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, do you really think that taking a body out of a casket and you know parading it around the church congregation is going to help in the resurrection itself? 
You know, come on, you you dead body. Which you just need to kind of you know get the rigor mortis out. You know, come on. You know, let's let's march you around. Remember what it's like to move. How this will get you going. Oh, oh no. And he's, he, he he was horrified. He'd never seen this in a funeral. Yeah, I hope never to see such a thing. Service in America before, and he said, "What are they doing?" And uh, they said, "Well, he's they're they're trying to raise him from the dead." His interpreter said. Uh, <laughs> oh, I am I'm in pain. And he said, "Well, uh, does like do they always do this?" He said, "Yes, at every funeral." We always have time to raise the dead, you know, because God can raise the dead. And he says, well, has it ever happened? He says, oh, yeah, it happens a lot. And he says, well, don't you think that would make the news? I mean, you know, I, I'd like to see the stats on that. Which country has the, the greatest number of resurrections per capita? You know, I. How long do they do it for? And he says, well, until you feel like telling them to put the body back in the coffin. Yeah, I, anybody makes a move towards one of my family members' coffins during a funeral, you know, to raise them from the dead, you're, you're going to have me standing there telling you to back off. Come on! And what struck me with that is it was culturally accepted that they try resurrecting bodies at every funeral service. But we are too sophisticated for that in America. We don't even bother trying because we... Yeah, that's the reason why we don't do it, is because of our sophistication. Really? Yeah. I think it would be insensitive or whatever. I... Yeah, <laughs> I... Oh, man. Okay, let me see if I got this straight. Let's just add this. Let's just think about this for a second. I mean, let's find a few funeral homes, you know, or you know, maybe a couple of churches or pastors who are willing to add the... The <laughs> the attempted resurrection portion of the funeral liturgy. Okay, it'll be right after the uh, the, the sermon hymn and uh, before the um, before the reciting of the creed. And uh, what we're gonna do, you know, it, it, you know. So let me see if I got this straight, Mrs. Smith. We would, you know, we want um, flowers. Got that? Okay. You want to sing hymn number five fifty two? You would like First Corinthians chapter fifteen? In its entirety, read as the biblical passage for your husband's funeral. No problem. We can do that. You're going to dress him in a nice business suit. No problem. That's great. Oh, and you know, at no extra cost, we can throw in the uh, the, the attempted resurrection portion of the uh, liturgy. Uh, yeah. Well, what that entails, I'm glad you asked. What it entails is, well, what we're going to do is we're going to take your husband out of the casket. Don't worry, we got some really good strong guys for this, and we're going to march him around the. Uh, the the church um you know maybe two laps or so you know and you know and you know because god can raise people from the dead and we'll, we'll you know roll the dice and <laughs> yeah anyone's going to you think anyone's going to say yeah that sounds like a great part of the you know for our you know, funeral for our loved one yeah, sign us up i think it's insensitive not to in a way but um we have to get over our cultural uncomfortableness of reaching out and putting our faith out there demanding resurrection in La at, at Lazarus's death Jesus received a word that he had died but he had so much confidence even though he loved Mary and Martha and the family he had so much confidence he decided to stay later so that he could go and work a greater miracle days later because he knew Lazarus would be raised from the dead he even told his disciples that he knew it 
And God wants us to have that kind of confidence. <sighs> you know, there's just times when I feel like I just, I just probably just need to walk away from the microphone and, you know, just walk it out, you know, just clear my head for a second. Oh, man. And so in Matthew 10, verse 1, it yeah. says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority mm-hmm. over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So we have authority to do that. Then in verse 7, or verse seven, it says, And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right now. Yeah, no, she skipped some, like... Yeah, she read Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, and then skipped to verse 7. You have your Bible, flip on over to Matthew chapter 10. Let's <laughs> add just a smidge of context here. I cannot believe I have to do this. Okay. <laughs> Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. He, Jesus, called to him his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease, and every affliction, the names of the 12 apostles are these. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <laughs> who did he give this authority to? Oh, and these are the 12 guys, by the way, who were who were given these this authority. Verse 5, I'm not going to list out the entire names, but you, you get the point. The names of them are like Peter, Andrew, James, John, you know, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, uh, uh, James, Simon, and Judas. Okay? Verse 5, these 12... <clears throat> These 12, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, this should clue you in as to something here, okay? This is a a kind of a short missionary training trip, and here they're commanded on this specific trip to not go anywhere to discuss anything whatsoever with the Gentiles, okay? Now, that should clue you into the fact that this is really for a specific time, a specific mission, a specific thing that Jesus was doing. Because if we were to take this this text and just say, well, we got to interpret it literally, and that means that we, you Gentiles can't be saved, well, then I'm out of the church because I don't think I've got a drop of Jewish blood in me. Right? Okay, <clears throat> we continue. But uh, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. You see, why doesn't she read this verse? I mean, I mean seriously, if this is, if we've been commissioned here. To raise the dead, well, then we've got to. This is this is applying to the you know all of the church at all time. Well, then nobody needs to be paid for doing any ministry work. You yeah, you get what I'm saying. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no or two tunics or sandals or a staff uh, for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it. Stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If not, 
Uh, then let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town. Truly, I say to you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Got it? So there's the text. Back in context, this is not a general commission, a general thing where Jesus says all of the church from this time forward has the authority to raise the dead. Um, yeah, this he's completely misapplying this text. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons freely. You have received, so freely give. Yeah, take no, no gold, no silver. And I think the absolute minimum we can do is at least practice raising the dead. Yeah, let's just practice it. Practice raising the dead. Even if you have a dead plant, start practicing. Yeah, you start off with small things. You know, um, uh, you know, like if you really want to do some resurrection practice, I, I recommend, you know, you know, the dead flies in your windowsill. Start with them and build up. Okay. Uh, once you're, you know, you're raising them from the dead with some kind of frequency, maybe build up to, you know, small rodents and house plants. Okay. And then as you get good at that, um, you, 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 you might want to, you know, you know, up it, up your game a little bit and, you know, go with household pets, you know, cats and dogs and things like that. And once you're really good at, you know, practicing resurrection and, you know, and raising cats and dogs from the dead, you can move up to like, you know, farm animals and then to human beings. Really get good at it first before you, though, decide to offer, you know, resurrection practice at somebody's funeral. Raising that plant from the dead and see what happens. You know, we got to stir up the faith for it. If we can't be faithful in a little, how will we be given much? Yeah, that, that <laughs> makes no sense. And so let's put our faith out. Even if we pray and pray, decree, decree, and we don't see the manifestation of the resurrection, go into the next one, the next one, the next one. But we cannot get discouraged. We have to start stirring up our faith because I believe that in this year we're going to see many, many resurrections yeah we'll check with you <laughs> at the end of the year patricia find out how many of those many many resurrections occurred oh my goodness that is just unbelievable okay switching gears i would like to play for you a little bit of audio from a video entitled uh, why tolerance is condescending and this is the uh, famous atheist pen gillette and i gotta tell you what he's saying here is spot on just like you to hear it. It's weird. You know, sometimes I find myself agreeing with atheists, but he's making a really good point. And this is one of the reasons why I strongly, strongly advise people within the Christian church to not hang their faith on their subjective experiences, but on the objective word of God. For instance, when somebody asks you, how do you know there's a God? The answer is this, because the biblical answer is this. You ready? Jesus claimed to be God in human flesh and proved it by raising himself from the dead on the third day. Let's take a look at the historical evidence regarding the historicity and claims of Jesus Christ and the eyewitness testimony of his resurrection from the dead that verifies that he's God in human flesh. It takes it completely out of the realm of the subjective and puts it into the realm of the historical and testable, which is really critical. But, uh, yeah, let's uh, let Penn Jillette uh, spend a little time explaining his thoughts on this matter. Here we go. And the people who say, I believe in God because I feel that there's some higher power in the universe, the problem I have with that is that once you've said you believe something that you can't prove to someone else, you have completely walled yourself off from the world. 
and you've essentially said no one can talk to you and you can talk to no one. Um, you've also given license to everybody else who feels that. Yeah, l listen to this. If you say to me, I can't prove it, Penn, but I have a feeling in my heart that there is a power over everything that connects us. Why can't Charlie Manson say, I can't prove it, but I have a feeling that the Beatles are telling us to kill Sharon Tate and that the race riots are coming. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Why can't Al-Qaeda say, I have a feeling in my heart that we need to kill these particular infidels? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, why yeah, on what authority are you, are you going to say that Charles Manson and the imams that are calling for jihad are wrong? I can't the uh, men who tortured and disfigured uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali, why isn't what they feel in their heart valid? The problem is, if you have a sense of fairness, simply by saying you believe in a higher power because you believe in it, you've automatically given license to anyone else that wants to say that. So I would rather be busted on everything I say, and I am. You know, when you've, <laughs> when you've put yourself out on television and on, uh, on uh, radio as someone who really does believe in objective truth, there is not a sentence that I will say in this interview that won't get three or four tweets of somebody with information busting me on it. And they're right. <laughs> you know, very rarely am I busted on something where I'm right. You know, if someone's taking the trouble to let me know I've said something wrong, chances are I'm wrong. Uh, and the reason I'm playing him right here, because what he's saying is absolutely true. Subjectivity is the slippery slope, literally. is Subjectivity, and this is not a logical fallacy, subjectivity, if you're going to basically claim that I know God exists and Jesus is uh, the Son of God because I feel it in my heart, then you have no way whatsoever to say that Patricia King didn't hear from God. That uh, that uh, Perry Noble didn't hear from God, and that God didn't that God told Perry Noble uh, in his heart to play Highway to Hell. I mean, you won't be able to stop any of the the silly things that are going on with Bill Johnson and uh, the or the New Apostolic Reformation and Cindy Jacobs. I mean, it's it basically all of them are fair game. It literally, you know, sub this, these subjective arguments are these, you know, the, the slippery slope that leads to rank ecumenicism. Inability to biblically or, or basically say that what that person is saying religiously or about God is wrong. And you know, at the end of the day, every lunatic concept must be, well, embraced. Because how are we to say that they didn't experience that from God? Hmm? I think Penn uh, Gillette here is making a good point. Now, he has one more point that uh, he's going to make here regarding uh, liberal uh, Christians versus fundamentalist Christians. Funny enough, he has more respect for fundamentalists than he does with liberals. Here, listen to what he has to say about that subject. What we call tolerance is often just condescending. It's often just saying, okay, you, you believe what you want to believe, that's fine with me. I think true respect is one of the reasons I get along so much better with fundamentalist Christians than I do with um, with liberal Christians, because fundamentalist Christians, I can look them in the eye and say, you are wrong. 
They also know that uh, I will always fight for their right to say that. And I will, uh, I will celebrate their right to say that. But I will look them in the eye and say, you're wrong. And fundamentalists will look me in the eye and say, you're wrong. And that, to me, is respect. The more liberal religious people who go, there are many paths to truth. You just go on and maybe you'll find your way, is the way you talk to a child. And I, and I bristle at that. So I do very well with proselytizing hardcore fundamentalists. And at a very deep level, I respect them. And at a very deep level, I think I, um, I, uh, I share a big part of their heart. I think in a certain sense, uh, uh, I'm a preacher. My heart, my heart is there. A lot of sense there. Great arguments. And he's spot on. It's interesting when uh, you find yourself having more in common with a hardcore atheist like Penn Jillette than some of the people who supposedly share the same faith that you do as a Christian. Something to consider. But the apologetic's task is not to point people to some experience in your heart or to your own life change. It's to point them to the objective evidence for a crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who claimed to be the one true God in human flesh and proved that claim by raising himself from the dead. And there was over 500 eyewitnesses to that historical fact. And that's how Christians know that there's a God. All right, we are up on our first break, running a little bit long. I knew we would do that today. Um, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so on my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. God doesn't need your good works. Your neighbor needs them. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> And now presenting for your listening pleasure, Majestic Mystery by Brian McLaren, read by Reginald Bumper Scatter. Oh, Majestic Mystery. Oh, Mysterious Majesty. My small hand can never grasp you. I can only hold it open. I don't like this oh, at all. Majestic <laughs> mystery. I, I think I'm going to be sick. Oh, mysterious 
He's saying words, but I'm not even sure it's English. Ah, my appendix just turned inside out. Someone help that poor man and call the paramedics. What's all this then? That poor man appendix is just turned inside out. Well, that doesn't sound good. It's not every day that people appendixes do that. What was he doing? Listening to the emergent poet on stage. He didn't tell me there was emergent poetry being read? Right. Everybody evacuate the building immediately. Here come the Navy SEALs! What seems to be the trouble? Somebody in that building is reading emergent poetry. Have you set up a soundproof perimeter? No, I haven't had time. Oh, we can't help you then. Wh what do you mean you can't help us? Too dangerous. T too dangerous? Don't get cheeky with me. You've seen but a small taste of emergent poetry's destructive power. It only gets worse with each passing stanza. Game over, dude. Game over. Quick, get that man into quarantine. His soul's been sucked out from his nostrils. Isn't that anything you can do to help that poor man? Afraid not. The only answer we have now is to nuke the site from orbit. You hold it open. It's open to you, Majestic Mystery. Search the area and make sure no one's hiding in the refrigerator. We can't have any survivors. It's been nice serving with you, Chief. Likewise. Can't believe the world's come to this. your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Warning, um, the disciples didn't argue from subjectivity for the deity of Christ. They uh, argued from objectivity, the objective eyewitness claims of his resurrection and fulfilled prophecy. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you 
and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you do that by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Man, we're getting a lot of play from the emergent postmodern philharmonic orchestra this week. By the way, this is one of my favorite update musics, you know, segments. Doug Padgett conducting. Rumor has it, uh, in the emergent postmodern Philharmonic Orchestra, Tony Jones plays second fiddle. Can't you just feel the spirit moving? I'm feeling verklempt. Simply beautiful. Simply beautiful. Okay, that's our uh, our <laughs> update music for when we're... Looking at things from the emergent church. This segment is entitled A Tale of Two Lents. L-E-N-T, not Lents, L-I-N-T. And uh, what we're going to do right now is we're going to listen to a conversation between Doug Padgett and um, uh, elder uh, emergent stateswoman um, Phyllis Tickle. I'm talking, uh, this is how emergent folks and postmoderns project their theology onto this thing called Lent and see if you can make... See if you can make heads or tails of any of this. Uh, here, here's Doug Padgett and Phyllis Tickle. Okay. okay, hey, this is Doug Padgett, and uh, Phyllis Tickle and I this week are talking about the role of Lent inside of our emergence culture and uh, what I refer to as the inventive age in Phyllis as a better term of uh, an emergence culture. And we're talking about the role of Lent and, and it's happening. And, and Phyllis, you, you've mentioned a couple of times in our conversations that for you, one of the strengths of the Lenten experience is its physicality. And I know that you also find... The Lenten experience, the physicality of the Lent, I don't, what does that mean? find it powerful that it happens within communities. Uh, that in other words, it's not just um, something that happens with a singular person in a place doing a physical practice. Notice the theme of community over individual. This is a major theme of irrational postmodern philosophy, which is, by the way, a direct descendant of fascist philosophy. 
but that it's a collective activity of a, of a historic yes. church and a global church and a, and a, and a present church. Um, talk a little bit about that. What do you think the role is and the importance of that, of that collective communal physicality? And, and <laughs> can you translate the question for me? What is the, you know, <laughs> the meaning of, the, of Lent to the collective communal physicality? Those, <laughs> you string those three words together, and I'm just getting a big question mark and a goose egg in my mind going, huh? I mean, if somebody would come at me with a question like that, I, I might consider having them, you know, institutionalized. But Even in our age in which people, you know, you and I are talking to each other from two different states on Skype, and then other people are going to watch this on their computer screens, and they're going to leave voicemails for people that they love and care about. And we're probably more connected and know more about the people in our lives who we who we find important than we ever have. Um, but we have a different, we have a changed kind of physicality in, in our world. And do you think there's something about the... We have a changed physicality in our world. Okay. These, Sounds painful. Uh, this Lenten practice in particular that, that has something to contribute to the, the kind of high, techno, high technologically advanced world that we live in? I, I'm grinning at you. Uh, I don't know whether you can see me or not. I'm, I'm grinning even as you're speaking, uh, simply because uh, I, I said the other day to somebody with with regard to what you're just talking about, that nobody ever put ashes on himself or herself. Uh, it takes another Christian uh, uh -huh. to do that. And, and, and it probably violates some law in Leviticus, too. It's probably some obscure thing about one putting ashes upon himself. Didn't Job cover himself in ashes. I don't think he had his friends do it for him. You know, just, no, just, just a thought. That's, that's anyway, right. I mean, kidding. it's almost autoerotic or something. Yeah. But, but this guy shot back to me and said, so on Second Life, can an does it take an avatar to put ashes on another avatar yeah. that are made from avatar leaves? And I said, you know, forget it. Yeah. Uh, we, right. We've gone right. too far. Jump the shark. Uh, but... <laughs> What are they talking about? But I, when he when he said that, I had this kind of strange sort of, oh, wouldn't it be interesting if indeed we met, for instance, in Second Life or by Skype? I mean, I can see you. You can see yeah. me even as we speak, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And we did indeed put upon ourselves, but more or less together, if you will, mm -hmm. as we say the words together of what it is that we're doing. What are we remembering? Ashes yeah. to ashes and dust to dust. Um, mm -hmm. That that's how we came and how we again will go. And it's what we leave in between uh, that, that lives on. If we were to recognize that, in virtuality as opposed to physicality, mm. would it st still not be just as physical? And my strange answer to myself was, yes, it would. There's <laughs> and my strange question to myself is, what are they talking about? To physicality beyond touch. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I didn't know that until mm -hmm. uh, I had this peculiar conversation yeah. with this guy. Yeah. Um, but there is. And I mean, I go in and out of Second Life. I have to, right? I'm yeah. watching what's happening in virtuality as well as in physicality in, in the church. Uh, but I never perceived that the physicality thing can indeed be done um, electronically. Yeah. yeah, and virtuality, yeah. It really, really can. And and it would be interesting to see what a communal uh, marking with the ashes would be like if it happened. Yeah, and it, yeah yes. <laughs> indeed. And it seems like what you're what you're getting at and what I like is that there's a communal that there's a communality to it. That's right. That 
I mean, seriously, I should have put a bell on these people every time I heard the word com, you know, community, communal, commun- communality. Uh huh. Is perhaps even more than only the physicality of it. In, in yes. other words, some of us have it's been in a room almost. where there's. Been- yeah, she's all excited about what he's saying. I have no clue what he's talking about. In a person yeah. whose whose brain doesn't allow them access to the outside world the way it used to, and they're not, they don't can't recognize that other people are around them. Um, yes. And so, even though there's a close physicality, there's not the kind of commun communality there. Um, yeah. What do you think it is yeah, about that say, communality that's so important? I'm go sorry, ahead. I, I overrode you. That's okay. Go ahead. No, no, I, I, I interrupted and I shouldn't. I thought you were through because I was going to say with reference to what you just said that uh, Sam and I were talking uh, last night because uh, because he's more or less housebound. He spends a great deal of time on the, on the computer. And he was telling me all the very intimate details of the spiritual life of a guy in Canada whom he's never met, but yeah. for whom he feels obviously um, – a real um, connection. I mean, it's it's not intellectual. It's an emotional and physical connection. And we were talking once more about intimate anonymity or mm-hmm. anonymous intimacy, regardless of what you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> this, what what does this have to do with Lent? I <laughs> what does this have to do with coherent thought? The term that emergence Christians taught me. Um, that there, that while in cyberspace you may not have the touch, what you've got is a level of intimacy that makes for community of a different type, mm-hmm. but in its own way much deeper, uh, because there is a, there is an honesty, there is a candor, there is a letting down of of all of the guards, the self protection, um, and uh, yeah, no. <laughs> okay, yes, <Yeah>. I. <laughs> Enough, enough, enough. Okay, so, so <laughs> that. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I have no idea what any of this has to do with Christianity. I just. I <laughs> Church, Christianity, Jesus Christ, the cross. I have. I. I whew. Okay, so the, the name of the segment, like I said, is A Tale of Two Lents. Okay, now, uh, j- just by way of contrast, I would like to play for you audio from uh, Matt Harrison's Lenten Blessings that video that he put out on YouTube. Uh, and Matthew Harrison is the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this is a man who is well-grounded in Scripture, well-grounded in in the understanding of historically how something like Lent came to be, and he's going to discuss Lent, okay, and its importance. And to keep in mind, you had the freedom to observe Lent or not observe Lent. It is not neither biblically mandated nor biblically prohibited. It's it's just a way of ordering, you know, the, the, your biblical readings, your prayer time, and and uh, and you know, all in all in preparation for the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's Matthew Harrison. And just compare what he's saying here to what Doug Paget and Phyllis Tickle were discussing, which I still don't even know what they were talking about. But uh, here's Matthew Harrison. Hi, I'm Matt Harrison, president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and I'm here to wish you, all of you, a blessed Lent. 
Lent is about three things. It's about repentance and historically also about works of charity and love and especially a time of prayer, looking forward to the resurrection of Christ in that celebration. The classic text for Ash Wednesday, of course, is Matthew chapter 6, about praying and about doing works of mercy. And when you do your works of mercy, you should not let your left hand know what your right is doing. And then the text says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to go into the synagogues and on the street corners so that everybody can see what they're doing. And then Jesus says, when you pray, you go into your room and close the door. It was during Lent, in fact, it was Holy Saturday in 1535, where a tragic event happened. The barber in Wittenberg murdered his son-in-law. Peter Master Barber, in a fit of rage, uh, was trapped in a horrible sin. Luther interceded for him, and uh, the charge was reduced to manslaughter. But this Peter was a very interesting character. He'd been cutting Luther's hair and most of the profs in Wittenberg for 20 years. And one day he was uh, lathering up Luther to get his shave, and he asked Luther, how do I pray? And Luther responded by writing what is one of the greatest little treatises. It's only about 30 pages on how to pray. It's a simple way to pray for Peter Master Barber. And it's available from Concordia Publishing House. This is Luther's Works, Volume 43, Devotional Writings. But it's also available in a little pamphlet edition. And it's a magnificent uh, little pamphlet. There are a number of tidbits along the way. He says, uh, the first thing we do when we pray is repent. Oh, Heavenly Father, dear God, I'm a poor, unworthy sinner. I do not deserve to raise my eyes or hands toward thee or to pray. But because thou hast commanded us all to pray and hast promised to hear us, and through thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, has taught us both how and what to pray, I come to thee in obedience to thy word, trusting in thy gracious promise. That's the way to start off praying. And then Luther goes through his own method of praying. He takes a text like that of the Ten Commandments or the Lord's Prayer, a really solid Word of God or a text very solidly based in the Word of God, and then he prays that text. And Now, before you're tempted to think, well, this sounds like Lectio Divina. No, it's not. He's focusing in on the very words of the text itself. He's not using the text as a mantra to springboard into a spiritual experience. No, his prayer life is centered in these solid texts, and he's reading them and meditating on what it is that God has said in those things. And listen to what, what Pastor, uh, Pastor Harrison describes here. It allows the thoughts of that text to expand. And there's some very interesting comments about Luther. The Holy Spirit works through these texts. And Luther says one should let one's mind wander and consider all the things that come to mind in these texts. The Spirit giving prompting. There's a now notice, it's not mindlessness but let your mind wander and really ruminate on what these texts are saying. Wonderful interplay between a solid rote text and um, free form of praying. And uh, then Luther uses this wonderful method which I call ITCP. Instruction, Thanksgiving, Confession, and Prayer. Uh, 
Luther said when he prayed uh, the first commandment. He said, you pray, I am the Lord your God, etc. You shall have no other gods before me. Here I earnestly consider that God expects and teaches me to trust him sincerely in all things and that it is his most earnest purpose to be my God. I must think of him in this way at the risk of losing eternal salvation. My heart must not build upon anything else or trust in any other thing, be it wealth, prestige, wisdom, might, piety, or anything else. That's the instruction. Now, thanksgiving. Second, I give thanks for his infinite compassion by which he has come to me in such a fatherly way, unmasked, unbidden, and unmerited, has offered to be my God, to care for me, and to be my comfort, guardian, help, and strength in every time of need. We poor mortals have sought so many gods and would have to seek them still if he did not enable us to hear him openly tell us in our own language that he intends to be our God. How could we ever, in all eternity, thank him enough? And then third, the confession. I confess and acknowledge my great sin and ingratitude for having so shamefully despised such sublime teachings and such a precious gift through my whole life and for having fearfully provoked his wrath by countless acts of idolatry. I repent of these and ask for his grace. And fourth, a prayer to pull it all together. I pray and say, O oh my God and Lord, help me by thy grace to learn and understand thy commandments. Preserve my heart so that I shall never again become forgetful and ungrateful. Amen, dear Lord God and Father in heaven. Amen. Now, hmm. notice the difference? One is just a discussion of all of these weird ideas and concepts just free-floating out there in the ether community and let's experience the communal life of the uh of the uh, of uh, whatever yeah and this focuses in on prayer repentance and charity and love towards the neighbor grounded in the biblical text from the, the sermon on the mount from matthew chapter six practical Grounded in the word, <laughs> solidly, you know, <laughs> it's it, it's just the word itself, practically. You, you get what I'm saying? You see the difference? One is theology. The other is just speculation, philosophy, and talking just to hear yourself talk. Tale of two lengths. Indeed, it is. One biblical, one that really is helpful in Christian discipleship, in instructing people practically what it means to repent, what it means to pray, what it means to read, read God's word, and what it means to, well, show love to neighbor. Big difference. Big difference. One's true, the other's false. One is practically useless. The other is full, chock full of help and benefit and instruction for real Christians who've been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of their sins and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You see the difference? I couldn't I can't see it any clearer if I tried. All right, we are up on our second break and when we get back we're going to be listening to a good sermon/lecture from Dr. Carl Truman 
on Luther's Theology of the Cross. And this is an instructional thing that we're going to be doing in preparation for a sermon I'm going to be reviewing next week. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me and my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Good sermon slash lecture from Dr. Carl Truman. Wait here and do this proper here. the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon slash lecture comes to us via dr carl truman of westminster theological seminary out there in pennsylvania the name of the uh discussion is the theology of the cross now this is an in-depth look at the theology of the cross that martin luther held talking about its development and also focusing on the tail end of the theses presented in the Heidelberg Disputation, which was shortly after the, um, the 95 theses were posted. Now, all of this is foundation work that you need to have in your mind for the sermon review that we're going to be doing early next week um, from um, Phil Pringle's church in New Zealand. So 
Without any further ado, here is Dr. Carl Truman and the Theology of the Cross. It's a pleasure to be back with you again this morning. Uh, I thought I'd spend just a few moments at the start of this lecture recapping on one or two things I said yesterday for those who weren't here so that as we pick up the narrative and the discussion this morning, you won't be uh, at a disadvantage. I talked yesterday about the early life of Martin Luther, and I gave some background on the nature of society and the church in the late 15th and the early 16th centuries. And then I talked about Luther's development, how he'd originally been uh, set on the career path of becoming a lawyer, but after a close encounter with a thunderbolt during a particularly spectacular storm, he makes a, a, I'd say a precipitate or intemperate vow to become a monk and goes off and joins the monastic order uh, of the Augustinians and how in the coming, in the sort of the decade after making that decision, he becomes increasingly obsessed with his own unrighteousness, increasingly obsessed with the question of how can he, as a sinner, as somebody who's unrighteous, stand before an awesome and holy God. And so the breakthrough comes, or one of his breakthroughs comes, when he realizes that the teaching he's been given on the nature of sin and baptism is actually inadequate to understand either his own experience or the biblical teaching on these matters. And he shifts from understanding baptism and sin as being a cleansing from dirt or the damping down of a piece of tinder or the healing of a wound to understanding it as referring to death. Sin is death. Baptism is death and resurrection. And that brings his mind to focus upon the fact that the problem, the human problem, can only be solved by the death of God himself. He comes around about 15, 15, 16, before I think he comes to convictions about justification by faith, he comes to a conviction about the costliness, if you like, of God's grace. And then I've played that sort of story in parallel with the bigger story of what is happening in Rome at that time, the building of St. Peter's Basilica, the wonderful but very expensive artwork of Michelangelo the financial crisis in the papacy, the need to raise money, and thus the uh, development of this scheme with Albrecht of Brandenburg, this man in Germany who wants to add a third bishopric to the two he already has, of selling an indulgence in the German territories. And how Luther's problem was not really that indulgences were wrong. That will come later. His problem was that Tetzel, this man who was selling indulgences in the parish next to Luther's, was selling them in an abusive fashion. He was telling people, for a mere cash transaction, you can buy the grace of God. And Luther's problem was, Tetzel had cheapened God's grace. And that was really where we left the story. I did mention last night that Luther nails what's called the 95 Theses Against Indulgences on the castle door at Wittenberg on October the 31st, 1517. It's important to understand what Luther wasn't doing when he did that. Many of us will have popular Protestant history books at home and you open up to the page on the Reformation and there's a picture of an angry guy in a monk's cowl nailing this piece of paper to the castle door and all of the artwork, particularly if it's of a sort of crass Victorian variety, all of the artwork 
uh, seems to indicate that what's really going on is a nail is being hammered into the coffin of the medieval church. That this is a protest launched by Luther with the intention of destroying the church as he knows it and rebuilding it again. That is emphatically not what is happening on October the 31st, 1517. Luther is simply on one level doing what one has to do in order to give notice of a debate. I sit in my office at Westminster and outside of my office there's a notice board and on the notice board it says you can't post anything here without getting permission of the dean. So anything posted on the notice board has to come through my office. But that notice board, it's just a notice board. It announces things that are happening on campus. There's a sense in which that's all Luther's doing on October the 31st, 1517. What he's doing is he's announcing his desire, his intention to debate the following points about the sales of indulgences. He's not intending to reform the church at that point. In Luther's mind, what's going on is if the Pope knows what's going on at this point, he'll certainly put a stop to it. Luther thinks that if the Pope only knows what Tetzel's doing, he will terminate Tetzel's commission. Remember, of course, that we're dealing in a world where lines of communication are very difficult. It's a long way from Wittenberg to Rome. You've got to walk it or ride on a horse. It's a long way. It takes a long time for information to get from Wittenberg to Rome and back. It's not immediately obvious to somebody sitting in the east of Germany exactly what the Pope's opinion on anything would be. That applies also on justification by faith. Luther's position on justification by faith, even in the 1520s, is not really heretical, as far as the Roman Catholic Church is concerned, because the Roman Catholic Church has no position on justification by faith until the late 1540s, early 1550s. The debate is, is what Luther's saying on all of these issues, does it fall within acceptable practice, acceptable belief, and when those beliefs aren't defined yet, who knows? So in 1517, Luther is not protesting against the church. He's protesting against an abusive practice that he thinks the church will clean up when he gets to know about it. If ever a movement started for the wrong reasons, I think it has to be the Reformation. The 95 Theses Against Indulgences, if you read them, they're fairly tedious. Really, you need to know something about late medieval practice and theology to understand quite a lot of what Luther's saying there. You get hold of it. I can never understand why I think Presbyterian Reform did this a few years ago. They republished the 95 Theses Against Indulgences. I would almost say there is almost nothing distinctively Protestant from a later perspective about the 95 Theses at all, except Luther seems to be a bit angry with what the Pope and, and the Church seem to be doing. The theology is really pretty conservative and medieval. The irony is Luther had said more radical things earlier and nobody had taken a blind bit of notice. Early September, Luther has what he calls a disputation against scholastic theology, which actually takes place. And what Luther does there really is ride a coach and horses through the way theology has been done in the late Middle Ages. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody bats an eyelid. The strange thing about what happens on October the 31st is it does become this amazing popular rallying call. And I think the reason it becomes an amazing popular rallying call against church abuses really has nothing to do with the theology of the document at all. It happens to be the right document at the right time. 
It happens to strike a chord with those who are tired of church abuses, those who are tired of sending taxes to Rome. It plays to the peasants because it uses language that appeal to political peasant radicals. It appeals to the nobles because it gives them a clear base for trying to curb some of the excessive taxation that's being sent to Rome. It becomes the manifesto of a strange social coalition that really has nothing to do with theology. How does it connect to the Reformation then? It connects the Reformation in this way. It makes Luther a problem for the church. And it guarantees that Luther will have various public platforms over the next few years. That as his own theology develops, the 95 Theses Against Indulgences has given him the notoriety that gives him the public platform to express the radical theology which will be developed in the coming months and years. So the 95 Theses Against Indulgences, I think a very tedious document when you read it today. And barely, very little in there, I suspect, that many thoroughly orthodox Catholic people would actually disagree with if they looked at it. The key thing is it makes him a notorious public figure and it guarantees him a public platform for his theology. So what happens then in the months after uh, this protest? Well, of course, Luther's theses are written in Latin. They're translated into German. They're printed. They go through multiple editions, and they spread across Germany like wildfire. Luther becomes something of a course celebre. And the church then has to decide what to do about him. But of course, when you, we, we think back, and we think Luther, big man, big problem. That's not what it looked like at the end of 1517, the beginning of 1518. What do you have here? Luther, he's a minor member of a minor order of monks, causing a bit of trouble about indulgences in the German territories. The church makes its first deadly mistake when it comes to dealing with Luther. It decides Luther's a small problem. Let's let the Augustinian order investigate this and sort it out for themselves. It's a little local difficulty. Let the Augustinians deal with Luther. Let's not make a big issue of it. And Luther is asked if he will give an explanation of his theology at a chapter meeting of the Augustinian order that takes place in Heidelberg in April 1517. The equivalent is like a presbytery meeting, if you like. It's a, a gathering of uh, the, the great and the good of the Augustinian order from that particular section in Saxony. They gather together to expedite bureaucratic business. But it's thought it would be a good idea when we have this meeting. Let's give Luther the chance to present some more theses on his theology. Let's look in more detail at the theology of Martin Luther. Of course, all the time, from the end of October to April, Luther's studying and writing and thinking. And there's nothing, of course, that should generate uh, creative in the right sense theological thinking than consistent preaching through the Word of God. He's also a preacher. He's a pastor. He's having to wrestle with issues. His theology is undergoing rapid development between October 1517 and April of 1518. And when Luther comes, he travels by foot to Heidelberg. When Luther arrives at Heidelberg, he will present a set of theses for debate, another set of theses, the Heidelberg theses, that lay out in more detail his big theological project. 
And what these theses do, they don't so much connect with the theses of October 1517 as with the theses of September 1517, where he said this more radical stuff that nobody paid a blind bit of attention to. So Luther then has to make this trip. He already, uh, the, the situation is hot enough for Frederick the Wise, his noble protector, to give him letters of safe conduct. So he sets out of Electoral Saxony on the 9th of April. And on the 21st or the 22nd of April, he arrives at Heidelberg, the ancient city of Heidelberg, where on the 26th of April, he presides at a disputation which will discuss a series of theses that he's prepared. And what is a disputation? It's a bit like a debate. If ever you're at university or you've switched on the television and there's a debate, you know, this house believes that. Somebody will speak to a particular motion, somebody else will speak against it, and then there'll be a sort of cut-and-thrust debate with the floor. And then finally, some decisions will be made as to who is right and who is wrong. And Luther will function as the equivalent of a chairman at a discussion like this. Standard medieval practice. He's given out a series of theses to be debated, and he will then chair the session, which a man called Leonard Beyer will argue Luther's case. And Luther will be the man who sort of judges points of order and makes sure that the discussion is conducted fairly. I want to now give you a, 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 an overview of these theses before we come to focus in on the really important ones. On the whole, what we see in these theses is the beginning of an emphasis on humility for Luther. We've not yet got to the point where he's talking about justification by faith. Remember I said yesterday, Luther had been taught by his medieval masters that if you just do your best, God will grant you grace. And Luther has come to realize that he's dead in sin, which raises up the question of how do I know if I've done my best? What is doing your best in the circumstances when you are dead? Well, Luther comes to the conclusion that doing your best, the thing, if you like, that triggers the process of grace, doing your best is coming to a complete acknowledgement that you are dead in your sins. Coming to realize that you are utterly hopeless in and of yourself and totally dependent upon the grace of God. And it's what we call Luther's theology of humility. You can see how close his notion of humility and his notion of faith will be. But at this point, Luther is talking in terms of humility. The true theologian, the true Christian, is the one who realizes they have nothing to bring and offer to God and can only throw themselves on his mercy in their humility. So throughout these theses, there is this chord of humility being struck. And what interests me about that is it indicates that even in 1518, Luther's not really reached a fully mature standing of justification by faith. And that goes back to what I've said about the theses of 1517. Don't think the Reformation is launched over justification by faith. The Reformation is launched over people thinking that God's grace can be bought cheaply by a mere cash transaction. The two are closely related, but they are different. So, on the one hand, you've got this tremendous emphasis on humility. But then, you come to the end, towards the end of Luther's Heidelberg theses, you have a series of very interesting theses. Now, I wish that I'd given these as an overhead that I could project up, but I will read them to you. I will read from Thesis 18 to Thesis 28, and then I'll come back to make some 
uh, reflections upon these. Thesis 18 reads as like this. It is certain that man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. There you are. That's the humility bit. What do you have to do to receive the grace of Christ? Well, Luther's medieval masters have said to him, you do your best. Luther here is identifying doing your best with utterly despairing of yourself. So we can see a connection there between Luther's emerging Reformation theology and what he's been taught in the Middle Ages. Then we come to some more confusing-sounding theses. Thesis 19 reads like this. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. That's a weird thesis. That person does not deserve to be called a theologian, if you like, who judges God on the basis of visible things. What does Luther mean by that? Well, we'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. Contrast, number 20, he deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. So in Thesis 19, you're being told, don't go judge God by what you see around you. In Thesis 20, you're being told, judge God by what you see on the cross. That takes us right to the heart of Luther's theology. I want to come back and unpack that in some detail. And then we get some theses that sort of reflect those, those two theses. Thesis 21 says this, A theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theologian of the cross calls the thing what it actually is. So you have these two different kinds of theologian. You have a theologian of glory, and he sees evil and calls it good. Well, what he calls good is really evil. And then you have the theologian of the cross who tells you what things actually are. He points to realities and tells you what they really are. 22, that wisdom which sees the invisible things of God in works as perceived by man is completely puffed up, blinded, and hardened. Going back to this idea of a theologian who looks around and sees how things are and then starts to make theological judgments on what God must be like. Theologian is puffed up, blinded, and hardened. Notice there, it's interesting, Luther isn't just making a point about what theologians call epistemology at this point. He's not just saying, oh, his theory of knowledge is all messed up. He's saying there's a moral problem with that person. He's not just saying, he's looking at the visible things and making this error and mistaking that for what God should be like. There's a reason why he's doing that, according to Luther. He's puffed up, blinded, and hardened. For Luther, this kind of knowledge is moral. It connects to the moral nature of the person. 23 says, the law brings the wrath of God, kills, reviles, accuses, judges, and condemns everything that is not in Christ. Here we have a slight change of tack. The law, the law of God, what does it do? It seems to be entirely negative in its purpose for Luther. It breaks down and kills and destroys. 24, yet that wisdom is not of itself evil, nor is the law to be evaded. But without the theology of the cross, man misuses the best in the worst manner. Luther immediately seems to be modifying what he's saying. He's saying, but don't take the negative purpose of the law as meaning the law is evil. But you've got to understand how the law connects to the cross in order to understand the law truly. 25, he is not righteous who does much, but he without work believes much in Christ. So close to justification by faith here. 
You can feel it just below the surface at this point. 26, the law says, do this and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this and everything is already done. I say to you, this is a dramatic development from October 1517. Here we do have the seeds of justification by faith clearly sown in Luther's mind. Actually, he says, 27, one should call the work of Christ an acting work and our work an accomplished work and thus an accomplished work pleasing to God by the grace of the acting work. There's something ongoing in Christ that he does but with reference to us, it's completely finished. That's what he's saying there. And then finally, 28, he says, the love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. Two different kinds of love. Why do I love my wife? Well, I saw something attractive in her. Why did my wife love me? She presumably saw something attractive in me. It's hard for me to imagine what that is. After 17 years of marriage, she may well wish to reconsider that. I don't know. I often joke to my wife, you know, I say, we've been married for 17 years. Do you know, if I'd committed murder in the United Kingdom, I'd be eligible for parole by now. Uh, but anyway, the love of man finds something intrinsic in its object and is attracted to it. But Luther says here, the love of God is of a different order. The love of God makes the unlovely lovely. That's a beautiful expression of what I call, I used the word Pelagian last night. That is a beautiful expression of what we call anti-Pelagianism. And that is the idea that there is nothing attractive in human beings to God. He makes them attractive when he acts on them in grace. And that is why God's love is so far superior to human love. Because it is an active love, not, if you like, a responsive love. So Luther there, and I have to say what Luther says there is entirely consistent with numerous strands of medieval theology. That's not a distinctively Protestant idea. You get that in the Middle Ages as well. What you have in Luther's theology always is points of continuity with medieval theology, points of radical break. We should never think that Luther gets rid of everything that happens before him. He builds on it and he changes it in dramatic ways. But that statement, you'll find that beautiful statement in some of the great theologians of the Middle Ages as well. So then, those are the Heidelberg theses. Why are they so radical? Well, the real significance of Heidelberg lies in what Luther says about the cross of Jesus Christ. And a couple of things I want to say as a, as a prelim here. First of all, if you don't get the significance of the theses that I've just read to you, you're in very good company. When Luther... When Luther's theses are read in Heidelberg in 1518 and when they're debated, there are numerous great theologians there who don't get what's going on either. There's a man called Martin Bucer. Martin Bucer is one of the great intellects that lies behind John Calvin. Martin Bucer ends his days as professor, as the Protestant professor of divinity at the University of Cambridge. You go into Great St. Mary's, the university church in the University of Cambridge, you will find there a plaque that says Martin Bucer was buried here. Why was he buried there and isn't he buried there anymore? Well, after he died, a Catholic monarch came to the throne and she had him dug up and burned at the stake and what was left of him thrown in the river Cam. So, yeah, as I you know, say to students, he wasn't then, to quote uh, the Wizard of Oz, he wasn't then merely, uh, simply merely dead, he was really most sincerely dead at that point. 
They didn't forgive and forget in the Reformation on either side. Martin Bootser was desecrated after his death. Why do I mention that? Shows how important he was to the Protestant cause. He was one of the great exegetes and theologians and church leaders of the 16th century. He was at Heidelberg, and he comes away from Heidelberg enthusing about how there's this new theological force, Martin Luther, who's having a go at the morality of the clergy. Misses entirely the fact that what Luther is actually doing is having a go at the entire way theology has been done for the last few hundred years. So if a man with a medieval background and the theological acumen of Martin Butzer can hear this stuff and miss the significance, we shouldn't be too depressed. If we read this and we say, well, we don't get what all the fuss is about. They didn't get it then. There are notes struck in Heidelberg that I think are theologically of critical importance that are never struck again in the Reformation, sadly. And one of those notes, I think, is the theses about the theology of the cross. Second thing I want to to comment on, and this is a more contemporary issue, the cross, of course, remains very controversial in Christian circles today. Uh, it's, it's not, it hasn't had quite the impact in the States, but I'm sure there are people who, who have similar views among evangelicals in the States. Huge controversy in the last couple of years in Britain over penal substitution. Numerous leading evangelicals have come out and said they don't believe in penal substitution anymore. They don't believe that what is happening there is a wrathful God being appeased. Some have gone as far as to say it's cosmic child abuse. When I hear that, I wonder, you know, do... How do you deal with somebody who thinks the cross is cosmic child abuse? Do you sit down and try to explain the doctrine of penal substitution to them, or do you just take them out back and hit them with a piece of two-by-four? I'm deeply tempted to adopt the latter option, although I would only ever do it out of Christian love, of course. Uh, But all the focus over recent years, I think, on the cross has been on penal substitution. And much of the writing has been on the doctrine of penal substitution. And that's right and proper on one level, because that is the point at which orthodoxy is most seriously under attack, if you like. And it's necessary to articulate in as positive and as loving and as gracious a way as possible that that piece of the doctrine needs to be defended. The danger in that situation, of course, is that we come to reduce the cross to penal substitution. There is more going on on the cross than just penal substitution. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying here that penal substitution is just one model among many that can be used. There is a basicness, if that's such a word, there is a basicness to penal substitution that renders it unique, I think, as a way of looking at the cross. But it's not the only thing that's going on there. And what Luther does so wonderfully at Heidelberg is he draws out the fact that the cross actually reveals something very, very profound about the way God acts. That's what he's really getting at when he, when he talks about a theologian needs to take account of the cross is the cross for Luther is the basic criterion for judging theological statements because the cross tells us how God has chosen to act towards humanity in Christ. But what you get there is God committing himself to being a certain kind of God. And that should affect the way you read the New Testament, the way you read the Old Testament, the way you understand your status before God. Luther himself hasn't quite connected the dots here, but it will also uh, connect to how you understand justification. 
the cross is critically important for Luther. That's why for tomorrow evening's sermon I've chosen to preach on 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because what Luther is doing here, I think, is he's picking up on profound insights of the Apostle Paul into the theology of the cross. So let's go back and look then at what Luther says. Let me read these. We've already, in some ways, glossed number 18 about despair, but a thesis 19, that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. Luther says there are two kinds of theologians. And the, the kind of the good news, bad news is, the good news is everybody is a theologian. You sit there today, Luther would say to you, you are all either theologians of the cross or theologians of glory. It all comes down to how you think about God. What is a theologian of glory? Well, a theologian of glory for Luther is somebody who looks at the world around them and assumes that because the world is the way it is, then God must be a certain kind of God. And Luther stands in a long line of medieval theology that's become increasingly disillusioned with that kind of theology. A line of theology for, for which God has become increasingly mysterious. Theology that's become increasingly dependent upon God's revelation. Think about it. The word power. The word power. If I say to you, what does power mean? Give me an example of power. You'll probably say, well, yeah, I say to you, who's the most powerful person you can think of? You're probably going to say the President of the United States of America. Yeah, he has more military firepower at the touch of a button than anybody else. He has more personal assistance than anybody else. When the president says, do this, by and large, people are going to jump and do it. The president says, jump. The only response is, how high and how frequently? You think of the president as being supremely powerful. I'm starting to get an echo, is that? Are you picking up an echo? Okay. You think of the president as supremely powerful. So then I say to you, well, God is powerful. What do you think about God? Theologian, the kind of theologian who looks at the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened, says, well, George W. Bush is powerful to a certain extent. So what I need to do to understand God's power is remove the inadequacies of George W. Bush from that picture. His humanness, his spatial limitations. The fact that sooner or later death's going to catch up with him. And I project what's left, that concept of power, onto God. So if you like, I have a concept of God as a kind of giant president of the United States without limits. An infinite president. Luther says, that's wrong. You cannot make that kind of leap from the way the world is to the way God is. And where it really becomes critical would be in the, the issue of salvation. Let's face it, Luther doesn't put it this way, but I think what's at the back of his mind is this. How do you think about God? I have a suspicion that most of us think about God as not so much a giant version of George W. Bush, as a giant version of ourselves. Quite probably, the person, the thing that we're most familiar with, is ourselves and the way we think. So when you think about God, what do you do? You think that God is like you, only much, much better and much, much bigger. 
because quite frankly, we do tend to think that we are the best examples of humanity for all of our faults. We're always more pardonable than other people's. But we extrapolate from ourselves to understand what God is like. And that has numerous kind of ramifications for us. Um, how do you please God? Well, John wants to please me. He's going to do something nice for me. Student wants to please me. They're going to treat me nice. Some student who comes up and spits on me at the end of the class, he's going to fail. He's going to be kicked out of the seminary. I expect to be like strokes by the students on that level. They've got to treat me right, treat me proper, and in return I'll like them and I'll return the favor. And I'm always assuming when students say, can I take you out to lunch or can I do this or that for you, they've always got this idea that somehow it's going to influence the final grade. And I suspect they may well be right in some cases. It becomes harder to fail people you like. Think about God like that, then that has implications for how you understand salvation. How do I stand before a righteous God? That was Luther's basic existential question. How do I stand before a righteous God? By doing him favors. By doing good works. By doing things that he'll approve of. Pat me on the head and give me a good grade for. So, the way you think about God, reflective of how you do theology, has profound implications right the way down to personal salvation. And it's amazing how many Protestants, I think, who've sat under good ministries being taught justification by faith, still don't get it. I'm always very uneasy when people say Catholics can't be saved because they don't understand justification by faith. Because I think you kind of rule out 95% of Protestants as well when you say that. It's amazing how many people you chat to in church and they'll say, well, Jesus has covered my sins. And you say, well, what, is, what do you mean by that? Well, it means that he's covered my sins and then I sin again. I go back and pray and he recovers the new lot. So there's this kind of continuum. And you think, well, so Jesus is just really fulfilling the same role as a Catholic priest kind of fills in a Catholic church. Jesus is just there to keep granting you absolution every time you do penance. And that is a wonderful Catholic justification by works kind of way of looking at it. I always think it's important to make a distinction between uh, being saved by faith and being saved by believing being saved by faith. There is a distinction there, an important pastoral distinction to be made. But this, this whole way of doing theology then is a real problem. And for Luther, it's the natural way to do theology. Because human beings are naturally idolatrous. And as you move on down these theses, it explains, why does he say the law brings the wrath of God, kills, reviles, accuses, judges, and condemns everything that is not in Christ? Why does he feel it necessary to say that? Because at the end of the day, you're going to be using the law as a good thing if you think you've got to do God a favor. I've got to do God a favor. I've got to do my best. I've got to help those old ladies across the road. I've got to do my best. I've got to do God a favor. How do I know what favors God likes being done? Turn to the law. And he gives me a set of instructions there on, you know, teach yourself favors to God. Have no other gods before me. Don't make a graven image. Don't commit adultery. Don't kill. That's how I do God a favor. I go to the law and I follow this code and he'll like me for what I've done. That. Unfortunately, of course, connects to the final thesis I read. Ah, but you're forgetting. God's love is not like human love. That is predicated on God being not like human beings. God doesn't look to see who's done him a favor 
And then he loves them as a response to that. Luther says, God's love is creative. It creates the object of its love. It makes good that which it wishes to love. So then, first problem, the theologian of glory, as Luther calls them, calls evil good and good evil. Theologian of glory sees that guy helping the old lady across the road. And when the guy gets across the road, he says, that was a really good thing you did. That'll help you get to heaven. Now, don't get me wrong. Luther doesn't mean to say that helping old ladies across the road would be an evil thing. Luther believes in the kingdom of the world. There are good acts and there are bad acts. But they're good and bad acts relative to the kingdom of this world. They are not good and bad acts relative to getting you into heaven. Any good action you do here on earth that you then depend upon for Luther to make God love you becomes evil. Even the greatest act of human generosity or self-sacrifice becomes evil if you use it to supplant the work of Christ. Don't get me wrong, you're better off helping old ladies over the road than pushing them under a bus. Definitely. But there's a sense in which neither of them help you in any way get into heaven. Neither of them. Neither act is of any use in making you an object of God's mercy and grace. So what does he contrast this theologian of glory with? He contrasts him with the theologian of the cross. Luther, of course, has been struggling with this question. Where do I find that God is gracious to me? Where can I find that God located? And for years, he's looked to the law. For years, he's looked to the law to find that God, and all he has found is condemnation because as high as his moral achievements have been, they fall below those of the law. He's haunted by Paul's statement that if you break the law at one point, you break it at all points. He's haunted by his own internal knowledge of his moral inadequacy. And then some point, around 1517, 1518, Luther comes to realize that the problem, the moral problem of death, moral death, is solved by the death of the Son of God. Where does Luther find a gracious God? Finds him crucified in the flesh of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. That's the breakthrough for Luther. And for Luther then, the whole of Christianity needs to be refracted through the lens of the cross. And then he can make these things up. Well, you know, evil, good, good, evil. He can start drawing these contrasts. Think again of power, the example I used earlier on. I said to you, give me an example of power. You're likely to come up with something that looks like George Bush or whoever occupies uh, the Oval Office of the White House at any given point in time. Luther says, no, that's not gospel power. To understand divine power, you must see where divine power is most perfectly revealed. Divine power is most perfectly revealed, yes, in God pouring out his wrath on sin, but where does he do that? On the cross, when it is his own son, his beloved son, who is the object of the pouring out of that wrath. Where is God's power over evil most dramatically demonstrated? Where is the devil's back finally broken? Where are the powers of the world, the flesh, and the devil finally defeated on the cross at Calvary? 
To understand true divine power, you must look to the weakness of Christ on the cross. That's where you see the power of God most perfectly revealed. In other words, when you use the word power, when you apply that in a Christian setting, you must mean the exact opposite of what the word naturally seems to mean. Power is made perfect in weakness. What about righteousness? How do you think about righteousness? Well, probably you think of a most godly person you know. I hate to keep picking on people who help old ladies across the road, but you think of that guy who he gives all of his free time to helping old ladies across that busy road. That's how you think of godliness and righteousness. Luther says no. Where do you see godliness and righteousness most perfectly revealed? In the death of a sinner on the cross. And I use the word sinner there talking about appearances. Remember, we're contrasting the visible and the invisible here. The visible phenomena of the cross are this. Failed Jewish teacher, fitted up for a crime he didn't commit, dies the worst death then imaginable for human beings. That's the outward phenomena of the cross. That doesn't look like righteousness to me. It doesn't look like power and it doesn't look like victory. But Luther's saying here in Heidelberg, you need to bring all of your theological vocabulary through the cross. You need to turn everything upside down. You need to understand that the way you think about God's power the way you do is because you make God in your own image. And you need to bring your ideas of God into critical subjection to God's revelation of God. You need to bring your idea of God's power to the foot of the cross and correct it in the light of what you see on the cross. That is why the Heidelberg Disputation is so dramatic and so powerful. And of course, it's why I say that justification by faith lurks just below the surface here. Because justification by works is really predicated on the idea that God's like us. And if you work hard and become righteous and, you know, don't watch baseball on a Sunday and help old ladies cross the road and don't drink too much or don't drink at all, depending on which denomination you belong to. If you do all those things, God will love you and like you. Why? Because, well, if you're told not to, it's because God's like a giant Southern Baptist or God's like a giant West Coast Scottish Presbyterian. You conform to the outward patterns of what your culture says are righteous and God will like you and love you. Predicated on a theology of glory. It might use all of the nice language of Christianity. But it is not Christian as far as Luther is concerned. So, what Luther does with his emphasis on the cross is use it as a way of saying you need to understand that if you're going to relate to God as gracious, you have to do it through the cross. You have to see what's going on on the cross. And I think this has profound pastoral implications for Luther as well. Because what it does is it creates an expectation of the Christian life that is very much at odds with what one might expect. I think by placing the cross so central as a way of revealing God's way of working, it changes pastoral 
expectations and it changes Christian expectations of what the Christian life should be like. Luther has another phrase that he will use again and again, particularly in the context of justification by faith, where he will say, God does his alien work, sorry, God does his proper work through his alien work. What does he mean by that? God does what he wants by doing the exact opposite of what we humanly expect. Cross is a great example of this. Remember I was talking yesterday about the contrast between the religious authorities, the soldiers, and the first thief on the cross, and the second thief on the cross. Contrast is the first three expected God, Christ, to show himself as king of the Jews by coming down off the cross and avoiding death. Only the second thief realized, made the connection, and realized, no, God conquers death by going through death, by dying himself. The first three, if you like, expected God to do his proper work by doing what they expected. The second thief expected God to do his proper work by doing his alien work, by doing the exact opposite of what we humanly expected. And that, I think, impacts the way that Luther articulates and comes to explain the Christian life. Suffering. I want to be very careful what I say about suffering here. I don't think Luther would go as far as to say that suffering is in and of itself a blessing. I don't think that Luther in the Theology of the Cross is necessarily saying that the way you know God blesses you is by how much maximal suffering you can endure. I don't think here he's speaking against those who don't suffer particularly. You know, if you drive a Mercedes car, for example, Luther's not saying you're not blessed by God because you could drive a Mercedes rather than your house is being repossessed because you can't pay your mortgage. Luther's not saying that. But what Luther does do in his Theology of the Cross is this. I think what he says is that you don't have to worry about suffering because you know on the cross it's already been subverted for the greater good. Death, the triumph of Satan over Christ on the cross. Satan pulls off the greatest coup in history. He arranges the assassination of God himself. Is actually the means whereby Satan receives his most crushing blow. The serpent's head is well and truly crushed. What Luther, I think, says is, I think two things. One, one should expect suffering in the Christian life. But there's absolutely nothing in the life of Christ that would lead us to expect that we won't suffer as Christians. And secondly, rejoice because whatever suffering comes your way has already been subverted to your greater good. You can't even be killed. And for it not to work to your greater good is what Luther's saying. Hard and painful as that may be. Luther's saying there is no ultimate reason for panic because this is what God is like. God is the God who can die himself and yet turn that death into a triumph. So the theology of the cross is very important and I think critically important. Again, in America in the 21st century, on a whole variety of different fronts. Give you a couple of examples. Um, Christians are always moaning in America about how little political and social power they have. Always moaning about that. Well, first of all, I'd like to comment as a European and say, you have an awful lot more social and political power in America than Christians have in Europe. Last thing that a European political leader wants to be seen doing, even a Christian one, is hanging around with Christians prior to an election. In this country, everybody, 
Every political leader has to be seen trotting into a church holding a big Bible. And the bigger the Bible, the better. Every political leader has to be seen courting the evangelicals in some way. I saw in Time magazine this week or last that, um, uh, can't remember his name, but the man, the big Willow Creek megachurch man, is appearing, you know, is now being sought out by Democratic contenders. And there's only a matter of time before the Republican contenders are seeking him out as well for the presidency. So my first comment would be, you have an awful lot more power than you think you have. But secondly, would be to raise the question of, you really want that power? You really want that power? Power can be a very corrupting thing. Further, what Luther says here is, Christians should not be operating with a model of power the way the world operates with a model of power. Christians' power is demonstrated through weakness. As Christians, that's not to say that a Christian can't stand for political office and wield earthly political power. Luther has plenty of things to say about the legitimacy of the civil order. And, of course, for Luther, there was no choice but for Christians to be in that civil order because in the world in which he lived, everybody except the Jews was a professing Christian. So it's not to say Christians shouldn't hold civil office, but it is to raise the question of the church. To what extent should the church seek to wield power as the world understands power? That, I think, is a serious question that needs to be asked if what Luther says on the cross is correct. And I think basically what he says on the cross is correct because it seems to me to be to rest fairly squarely on the teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Second area where I think this is of significance for us is this. Expectations of individual Christians as Christians. It is very easy to take pot shots at Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn. I was at breakfast this morning and we had a few pot shots at Joel Osteen and Benny Hinn. It is very easy to do that. Because they're the health, wealth, and prosperity people. But I want to raise the question of maybe the difference between Joel Osteen and your typical North American Presbyterian is this. Joel Osteen's merely more honest about what he actually believes. Maybe that's the real difference between many of us and Joel Osteen. He's honest and we're not. Which actually makes him a superior moral person. And I raise that question because it's one thing to say on paper you don't subscribe to the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And I hope probably everybody in this room would subscribe to that. It's a different thing to subscribe to it in practice. It's a different thing to subscribe to that in practice. Are you tempted to curse God when you don't get that pay raise? Are you tempted to curse God when the plumbing goes wrong and suddenly you're slapped with a thousand dollar bill that you didn't expect and didn't budget for? Are you tempted to curse God when you catch some illness that sets you back? You know, I would be in all of those situations. Cards on the table, I'd be very tempted to be disillusioned with God in those situations. Well, my question then comes, am I not really a health, wealth and happiness theologian at that point? Is the difference between myself and Austin not simply that he's public and honest about what he believes and I hide what I really believe behind a veneer of Westminster Orthodox? The cross, I think, is critical in that situation because if you really take the cross seriously 
as a revelation of God, and not just as penal substitution, but a revelation of how God acts, how he has acted, and how he will continue to act within his people and within his church, it really does change your horizons of expectation. It really does change what you expect out of the Christian life. So then I would suggest two ways in which the Luther's theology of the cross rings true today. Expectations of the church vis-a-vis secular power and influence. Expectations of Christians in terms of what they expect to get out of life. Two ways in which the theology of the cross is extremely important. And it saddens, it's, it's sad to me that the theology of the cross is a note that by and large drops out of Protestant theology in the Reformation. This is its high point, 1518. Luther himself will continue to work out some of the ideas for another decade. But by and large, this is not really picked up by other Protestant theologians. And it does vanish, by and large, from our tradition. And yet, I think Luther has crucial insights here that are probably more applicable today to Protestantism than they were in Luther's day to the Catholicism that he was interacting with. So I commend Luther's Heidelberg disputation to you for your thoughts and your reflection. We have a, a few minutes left. Maybe I'll, is the time we take a few questions now, John, or should I, should I leave it till the... I'll take a few questions. Now. I think there's going to be a longer question and answer session. Is there after the, after the last? Also, maybe short questions, informational questions at this point, then I'll say a word of prayer and John will introduce the, the last psalm. Sure. I'll repeat the questions so we all, we all can hear them. Any questions? Everything I've said has either been crystal clear or so incomprehensible that nobody has an idea of anything what to ask. Wait. The question is, should, should Luther's theology of the cross change how we pray? I suppose my answer to that would be, it depends how you pray at the moment. Um, yeah. Well, for example, yeah. For example, when, when, when you experience suffering, I certainly think it is legitimate if one of my children perished the thought was suffering from, from a serious illness. Clearly, I would pray for them to to recover. And I think the New Testament gives us grounds for praying that God will heal. It gives us no guarantee to expect that God will heal in every, each and every case, but certainly there are grounds for us to pray that God will, will deliver us or our children or our loved ones from, from difficulties and from suffering. But I do think that our prayer should also be tempered by the question of, I think, asking God what we should be learning from this situation. And I think so often we forget to do that. Not only do we pray for the alleviation of suffering, but we then forget to pray, Lord, what are you teaching me through this? What are you bringing to my attention through this that it's necessary to deal with? How, how is this situation? I mean, what, what is the strange thing about the cross? The strange thing about the cross is that the terribly unjust and sinful judicial murder of the Son of God brings such glory to God. 
And I think the question should be, how does this situation bring glory to you? How can I bring glory to you in this situation? How can I learn from it? So I don't think that, I think it would be, we would be less than human if we used the theology of the cross as an excuse just to put the kind of Jesus loves you smile on and go around as if we weren't affected by it. Again, this is why I think the Psalms are important. It's important to sing and read the Psalms and pray the Psalms because they give us a language to express suffering. And there are things said in the Psalms that if they weren't said in the Psalms, we'd probably hesitate to say them to God because they seem so near the knuckle. I mean, Calvin himself in his commentary on the Psalms says, uh, it's okay for the Psalmist to pray this way, but you shouldn't do it because it's too risky. I think that's nonsense. I think Calvin's talking nonsense at that point. I understand where he's coming from. He doesn't want people to think they have an excuse just to barge into God's presence and chat the odds at him. But I do think the Psalms there teach us that we can lament and express agony to God in prayer. So I don't think the cross negates that. It doesn't mean we have to appear cheerful when inside we're falling apart. But I think the cross does remind us that even though this is terrible and even though we cannot comprehend it, Yet God's will is strangely being done, and he will be glorified despite the outward suffering. And we should ask that, that he shows us how he is glorified in this and what we can learn from it. Take one more, and then we'll, we'll have the, the psalm. Yep. Okay. Well, the, the question is, I've made a, a number of allusions to the fact that Luther draws his theology from previous, I mean, I say medieval, but of course Luther didn't have nicely sliced up historical categories, previous theologians of the, of the previous thousand years or so. And the question is, is it Augustine? Where is it coming from? Well, certainly Augustine is crucial for Luther. He does read a lot of Augustine. The availability in the early 16th century of complete texts of Augustine as opposed to extracted quotations, means that the whole reception of Augustine by the church changes and it paves the way for a clearer understanding of what Augustine taught about grace, which clearly underlies much of the Reformation. But there are some strange connections as well between Luther and the Middle Ages. I mean, one thing I've said is that he reacts against this idea that if you do your best, God will give you grace. And yes, he does react against that. But if you just think about that for a minute, what are those medieval theologians saying? They're actually saying that God can say that you're in a state of grace, you're justified, without you actually intrinsically being righteous. That continues with Luther. Luther gets that from the Middle Ages, and he will change it into justification by faith. But the first people who said, well, God can make this declaration that somebody's righteous without them really being righteous were those very semi-Pelagian medieval theologians against whom he reacts. So when you look at Luther in the Middle Ages, it's what I call it's a balance sheet. There are some things he draws out, and yeah, he, he follows through with those, and there are other things he has to reject because he sees them as ultimately clashing with, with what Scripture teaches. But the, you, know, you say maybe you can't answer this question simply. There's a sense in which I have to say, no, I can't because it, he draws from so many theologians and there are so many continuities and discontinuities. But even his immediate medieval doctors against whom he rails so violently in later years, he still borrowed a few things from them. 
that were useful. It's always good with theologians. Don't so much look at what they say they're doing as to look at what they are actually doing. Yes, he rubbishes the Middle Ages, and then he goes away and uses quite a few bits of it. So, shall I say a word of prayer? Oh, John. I think um, I, the question is, where, where in, in my experience of preaching and teaching in North America do I see omissions uh, relative to the preaching of the cross? Certainly, I think what I've said this morning is not a note I hear struck very often. Although my, my experience is pretty much restricted to kind of middle-class Baptist, Presbyterian, white circles. So I, I'm only talking about a very narrow strand of American Christianity. I think that... Um, there's a hesitancy often to, to preach on the cross as an example, which I think derives from, we, we don't want to do the liberal thing of reducing the cross to an example. But I do think there are exemplary aspects of the cross, that what you see there is the God-man acting in perfect obedience and submission to his Father's will. And I think that that is a good example. It's unique in many ways, but there is an example there of obedience to God. So I would see that as being something that... Uh, is, is useful. I've, I've not heard much preaching on the cross as the sort of triumph over the powers of darkness. Whether that's because we don't want to sound too much like charismatics with sort of territorial demons and this sort of thing, I don't know. But I've not heard too much of that either. But I do stress my experience is so limited as to be almost worthless, I think, in, in my, my comments on that. So I'll say a word of prayer. Oh, Lord God, we praise you. We praise you for the mysterious way that you have revealed yourself in your hiddenness. That hidden in the flesh of Jesus Christ, hidden in the darkness and the brokenness of the cross, in a miraculous way you've revealed yourself to the eyes of faith. As being a glorious and powerful and holy and righteous and perfect God. Lord, we do pray that the lessons of the cross would not be reduced by our human categories, by the smallness and by the blindness of our own human fallen minds. Lord, your spirit would take your words, take the message of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and expand our horizons and continue expanding them, Lord, until we reach the full measure of your revealed biblical power. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.